Thank you very much. And uh, it's, it's an honor to be here. You guys can sit down. And uh, I'll tell you, the, um, you know, the family of God is one of the most, if not the most beautiful thing on the face of the earth. Um, you know, it is the only thing in all the world that can unify everybody, right? We all become one body. We all become the same. And even though we're so unique and so different, yet we all share one common goal and one common purpose. And uh, it's, it's, it's an absolutely beautiful thing. And I'll tell you, in the States, I didn't know this until a few years ago, but in the States, you know, uh, the word university, uh, actually, they, they came up with that word because what they believed was that they could bring unity to diversity through truth. And so they, they said, we're going to start teaching the truth. And, and so what ends up, we believe, is that you could have an unbelievable amount of diversity, but we can bring them into one, into unity, by bringing them to the truth. And, uh, you know, the first universities in the United States were Christian universities. Princeton, Yale, the first five years of graduates, I think 90% of them went off into full-time ministry. Um, but now, in the United States, one of the most divisive places in the United States is a university because they've cast out truth, right? So everybody's got their own truth and they all gather together and it's become this incredibly divisive thing. So to be a part of the body of Christ is just absolutely uh, one of the most remarkable things. To be all the way on the other side of the world, literally, and, and to be worshiping and to sense and feel I'm right at home um, in, in the body of Christ is just awesome. Uh, my wife, uh, Reagan, right here, we've been married 22 years. Uh, we have been together pretty much since we were 13, um, with a little bit of time in between. And um, we have three children and two grandchildren, and uh, we love every bit of it. Uh, we're from uh, Phoenix in, in Arizona, where when we left, it was 48 degrees. And so um, we're a little bit at shock. In fact, yesterday... Um, we found out that uh, the, the, there was a... So in, in, in Phoenix, we are pretty much devoid of natural disasters. So, um, but yesterday, we, have, we do have monsoons, massive lightning storms, thunderstorms that come through, torrential downpours. And, um, of course, the desert floor is hard, uh, so it doesn't accept the rain. It just allows it to move on. And so uh, lightning struck near our home, took out the power... And our, uh, her parents, were, who are with our kids, uh, said that they've been without power for 20, 24 hours. <laughs> and if you have a teenager, you know what it, what it <laughs> my, our 13-year-old's probably pulling his hair out. Um, 100 degrees in the house, which is what, 40, 45, 42 degrees in the house, no fan, can't even circulate the air. So anyways, they're having a good time. The power, actually, the power just came on before we came to church, which is awesome. Um, I really, I, I just feel impressed to share that so much about uh, this morning uh, is exciting to us. Uh, you know, um, we're, we, we hail from Phoenix, Arizona, and, and if, I'm going to try to give you in the, as fast as possible a picture of our ministry and, and, and a brief history of the last five or six years and why I think, uh, why I think it's, it's important, um, especially to, to this body of believers. But first, I want to I share a story, if that's okay. Um, there is an, uh, I have this little book that's called The Greatest Stories You've Never Heard. 
And I'm going to read one of them titled Lost in Translation. And basically, this is a story about uh, the dropping of the bombs on Hiroshima and and Nagasaki. And uh, at the time, uh, the, the Allied forces had just finished defeating the Germans in Europe. And they were meeting in Potsdam. And all the Allied forces had gotten together. And they decided on the terms of surrender that they were going to offer to Emperor Suzuki. And so rumor had spread at what those terms were, and the word had actually reached the emperor and his administration. And as they talked about the different things, they actually said that they felt that the terms were incredibly lenient and that they would like to accept them. But the emperor was a very old emperor, and he was very proper, and he didn't want to speak out of terms, so he had told them we weren't going to say anything until we received, through the proper channels, those actual terms. But the press at the time in Japan was pushing them so uh, Tokyo Radio came in, and they were, they were asking questions, and they said, have you heard of the terms that they've talked about in Potsdam, and what, are you, what do you have to say about that? The emperor, in great, he was, he was old, um, had, had decided they were going to take a posture. Let me see if I can find this word, makusatsu, right? Now, this is the word that he said, look, we're going to take this posture of matsusaku, which, which to the older generation actually meant we were going to withhold comment for the moment. But to the younger generation, that word had kind of uh, uh, changed into a word that meant ignore. And actually, the exact translation means to kill with silence. So the younger generation said, oh my gosh, we're going to ignore. The emperor is going to ignore the the terms of, of the allied forces. And so they broadcast it to the world. And when President Truman had heard that they were going to ignore the terms, he gave the order to drop the bombs. And over 100,000 people were killed. And this morning, uh, I think that there's such a profound message. And that one, uh, you know, the younger, the, the younger people that were listening to the emperor speak didn't know what he actually meant. But the people closest to the emperor knew what he meant. Right, the people closest to him. And I think, I think that there's an important message for us as believers. It's we should be close to the one who's speaking. Right? When, the, when the word of God comes out, we should be close to the one who speaks. Because if we aren't close to the one who speaks, there is a risk that we might misunderstand what he's saying. Right? And to use a really good example, I'll, I'll read uh, Romans 8, 28. We all know this passage or this verse, all things work together for the good who love God and are called according to his purpose, right? Now, this is a wonderful verse. Everybody loves this verse. The problem is, is that the word good is a relative. It's like beauty. It's in the eye of the beholder, right? So the word good means something different to each and every one of us. So when we read that word, we think to ourselves, man, that's awesome. All things work together for the good of, the one who, of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. That's me. Right? But the problem is, is there's two people involved in this verse, the one who's saying it and us. I think probably the easiest way for, for you guys to, to relate, I won't use an American reference, I'll use an Australian one, state of origin. Right? So you have a, a, a Queenslander, and then you have the New South Wales, and, and they're watching the game together. The exact same moment, the exact same thing occurs. To one of them, it was good. To one of them, not so good, right? Yet it was the exact same thing. 
So someone's going to walk away from it and be like, man, that was great. Somebody's going to walk away from it and say, worst day of the year. Right? And so sometimes we think we do this. And I think when we think about this young reporter, sometimes we think I'm going to interpret what God says to me, how I see it. That I'm interpreting the word. That young reporter said, this is what that means to me, rather than what does it mean to the one who's speaking? When we read God's word, we got to ask ourselves, what does, it to, what does that mean to the one who's speaking? Right? So God's speaking to us. And I think when it comes to missions, uh, this, is, this is the most vital part of it. Because my wife and I have been doing youth ministry for 22 years. And we were youth pastors for nine years. Right after, In fact, we got married in June, and we were youth pastors in November uh, of 2000. And um, it was quick, quick work, and uh, we went into it. And the first job we took, I, we stayed there for nine years. For, as for a youth pastor in the United States, it's a big deal. I think the average youth pastor lasts about a year. <laughs> and we were there for nine years because that's who God has called us to minister to. And so in 2009, when we left to start what we call the refuge, we started in a warehouse, right? We, we, we had, through some miraculous events, we found ourselves a warehouse, and bam, we were in this warehouse, 23,000, I think 24,000 square feet of, of warehouse. I mean, when I say warehouse, I mean warehouse. You know, it's, it was made for a factory. There, it's not insulated, you know. And I just told you, we get up to 48 degrees. For a long time, we didn't have air conditioning where we had church. So we would pump in these fans. And it gets cold in Phoenix in the wintertime. And we, sometimes we would have to have an open flame to try and warm up the room. We would turn it off, you know, when it was time for church. But we'd be like, oh, just, just let's get some warmth into this room. And here we are trying to pioneer this church. And uh, we began to minister to the kids, unchurched kids. That's who we're called to. And we have uh, this warehouse that we spent all of the money that came in on the mission which was reaching unchurched kids. So we built a skate park inside. We built a basketball court. We got a weight room, an automotive shop, an art room, and, and just began to create avenues in which we could draw and, and build relationships with kids that don't go to church and, and then invite them to church. And then we began to see them over those years get saved. And we were, we were just having tremendous success within this community. And at the time, uh, every single month, God miraculously. It was just my wife and I and a couple of, of our friends, and, and uh, we had no financial support, no big church, you know, no big church uh, to, to fund it. It was, it was pretty wild. And, um, you know, I, so we would go and we would raise. You know, in order for us to pay the bills at this, this ministry that we had created, we had to raise about $25,000 a month. Right, U.S. dollars, which is I think like almost forty thousand dollars a month, Australian. So we're trying to raise this money every single month, and every single month God did it. In fact, for the first six years, we were never late on a bill. And in the states, that's like a pretty. In fact, when we set out to do it, all of my friends who were pastors, people I looked up to, Tommy Barnett, and and just the other people were like, "Just be prepared. You're gonna have to. The first two years are gonna be a nightmare, you know." But from the word go. God was paying bills. And at the end of every month, we would sit down as a board and we would talk. And, and uh, they'd look at the numbers. In fact, some of our board members were like, I can't come to every board meeting. It's too stressful. You know, because they'd give the spreadsheet and they'd be like, every month we pay the rent. 
and then bam, we're in the red. Every month we pay the rent and bam, we're in the red. And you would get, you know, our electric bill in this building because it's not insulated in the summertime would jump up to $4,000 a month just to pay the electric, you know? And so they're, they're stressing out, you know, they come into the building, someone forgot to turn the air conditioning off. I get a phone call. So the air conditioning was on. I'm like, well, I'm so sorry. You know, what do you want me to do? And I told them from the beginning, I don't care. Like, we will spend every dollar we get on ministry, not management. Let's, let's win the lost. And God just kept paying the bills and kept paying the bills. And uh, I met a man who had come to town. He, he had come at, from Imagination's church to start a church in Phoenix. And, and somehow we had uh, been introduced through a, a common friend. And when I met him, he said, oh, we're church out of Australia. And I'd never been to Australia um, I got to be honest, you know, I grew up surfing. So personally, I always thought Australia was like the coolest place on earth, you know, just from a young age. I grew up watching a movie when I was a kid called North Shore, you know, and had Aki and if you know surfing anyways. Um, so they were, I was like, Australia, automatically, this was awesome, you know. And, and then when the head pastor came to Phoenix, Arizona, he walked in, and he started talking to me and I found out he was American. Oh, yeah, I was a little disappointed. Yeah, <laughs> you don't sound Australian. <laughs> um, but, but uh, you know, it was, was this amazing, exciting thing. And he said, listen, I just want you to know that we're a church that made his last command our first priority. And I got to be real. I, I only know one way, but to be real. Um, I thought it was clever, right? Like, I'm like, that's super cool. You know, like you have sayings. <laughs> you know, his last command is our first priority. And church has become such a business and so commercialized that my first thought was, man, that's, that's an awesome, catchy way to capture missions, but do you do it? Right? Do you do it? So they invited us to come out, and um, I didn't really want to, I wanted to come to Australia, but they invited us to come out because they're like, we're going to merge. Now, you have to understand something. At the time, our church was probably, without any funding, we'd probably grown to about 150 people. And they were giving to the tune of twenty-two dollars to $25,000 a month to pay the bills to sit in a very hot sanctuary on very uncomfortable chairs because they wanted to reach unchurched teenagers. In fact, in order to get into the sanctuary, they have to walk through the skate park. And on almost any given Sunday morning, kids would be skating. We would have unchurched kids show up an hour before church to skate so they could come to church. And they would go straight from the skate park into the church, leave their helmets on, sweating profusely and smelling like teenagers who had been sweating profusely and just sit right in, you know, to hear the gospel. And they're, every, every month they're going, I'm giving to this, I'm giving to this. And so we showed up in Australia and they began to tell us and talk and just open up scriptures to us. And I thought, well, no, I understand missions. We're doing missions. We're doing missions, you know? I mean, that's what we're doing. We're doing missions. And, and they're like, yeah, but his last command, go into all the world. Are you going into all the world? And at the time I thought, well, I mean, I don't have time to go into all the world because I'm doing missions right here. And as I sat and listened, and, and honestly, this morning was as powerful as the conferences that I've been to, to hear about Sri Lanka, um, and, and, and to hear about Lesotho, and, and just be like, you know, just, just opening our eyes to the fact that a huge percentage of the world doesn't know the life that God has blessed us with, 
and to, and to be so short-sighted that we aren't willing to even ask ourselves. Right? And so I sat there, and as, as they began to speak, there were questions that the Holy Spirit began to ask me, right? Which was, first question, if the only thing God measures my life by is how well I filled the Great Commission, would I pass or fail? Was there no, I'm like, well, God, I'm, I'm, I'm even in the front row. God, I'm reaching unchurched American kids, right? Probably the hardest demographic of obnoxious people to meet in the world. Right? And he said, yeah, but I didn't just come for America. The verse says, for God so loved the world. And so I'm sitting in the front row going, okay, you're right. It does say God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm listening now. My ears are open. Because I was really challenged, like lost in translation, lost. I kept thinking of that story and realizing, has something been lost in translation? Have, have I settled? Right? And then all of a sudden, God took me to, to the, the, the 99 and the 1. And, and he said, if any man has 100 sheep and loses one, he will leave the 99, not in the pasture, not within the safe confines. It doesn't say that the shepherd makes sure that those 99 are well-fed and manicured and rested up, and then he goes. In fact, it says it leaves them in the open field where they're still in danger. Things are not secure. Things are not perfected, and he pursues the one. And all of a sudden, my heart began to stir like, wait a minute, am I, have, have I adopted this idea that to be a follower of Jesus Christ is, is to manicure the sheep, to, to make sure everybody in the pasture is taken care of. When the reality is, is Jesus himself says over and over and over again, I didn't come for the righteous, but the unrighteous. I came to seek and save that which is lost. And, and all of a sudden, I began to be challenged, and, and I was like very convicted. And, and night after night, God, the Holy Spirit just kept asking me a different question. And I couldn't bring myself to, to resist. And finally, uh, on the second to the last night, the Holy, the Holy Spirit said, can I ask you something? And, and, and I, this is the, kind of how I communicate with the Lord. And, uh, and, I, and I was like, open, okay. And he said, uh, if at the end of next year, you know, 100 kids come through, and you minister to them, and you see them get saved, and they're getting discipled, and you're building relationships with them, and they're serving in the church. And you go, wow, look at what we're doing for the kingdom of God. Wouldn't that be great? Oh, sure would be great. And then the Holy Spirit said, what if at the end of the same year, a hundred kids, just as I said, come through, and they're getting saved, and they're getting plugged in, and they're discipled, but at the same time, you're having an impact all around the world. You're funding homes in Burundi, right? You're, you're paying for an education in Mexico. You're doing a work in Nigeria, but nothing's changed uh, except you started thinking about the world. And I'm telling you, it was like this, the whole, the whole room could have gone silent. My eyes just went, what? And, and, and as I begin to really research and ask the Lord, okay, God, show me what's going on. I just begin to find one thing after another, after another, after another. I, you, you grow up in a place like America where 70% of people still call themselves Christians, regardless of whether or not they've ever been to church. And you tend to just think at technology. 
you tend to just think, come on, the gospel's got to have gone everywhere by now. Right? It's got to be everywhere. Why would I just, why are we so focused on reaching the world? The world probably has to know about Jesus. And then you get into it and you realize three billion people have never heard the name of Jesus. Three billion people. And that's a very conservative, that's 2,700 languages don't even have a Bible in their language. And you know, the year I learned that, we showed up at conference and they started doing the the language here for the Aborigine people. And that was when I really, because I was like, come on, that can't be true. (laughs) There's no way that's true. And then they said, oh, we're going to translate the Aborigine into Bible. And I thought, wait a minute, in a first world, there are people groups that don't have the Bible in their language? Maybe it is true. And then the Lord said, and this is really hard for Americans. And then the Lord said, you know that the gospel didn't start in America. I don't know if you guys know this about Americans, but we think everything started in America. Just a heads up, you know. And, uh, and now there's nothing wrong with it. Wherever you're from, you should be proud of it. But wait a minute. You mean I'm the product? Me? I'm the product of a mission? I am the result of somebody saying the Great Commission matters, right? The American church is the result of somebody saying we're going to get on a ship and we're going to sail oceans. Nobody has ever sailed at risk of dying to reach lands nobody's been to for what purpose? So that we can worship our God and deliver the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel. And all of a sudden, I just went... And I remember sitting there on the last night because I hadn't made a decision yet. Are we going to do this? Are we going to do this? Are we going to do this? And the Lord said to me quite clearly, is the kingdom of God is bigger than the refuge. And the refuge is our ministry. The kingdom of God is bigger than the refuge. And I just said, no, you didn't say that. I can't, like, struggling. This is what I'm doing. He said, no, the kingdom of God is bigger than the refuge. Put the kingdom first. And I will take care of everything else. And there was a sense of which I said, okay, wait a minute. Are you saying I don't have to give up what I'm passionate about to pursue what you're calling me to, the Great Commission? No. Like Abraham and Isaac, nope, nope. You just have to trust me with it. And if I could, just briefly, and I'm almost hesitant to do this because I, I know that this is a, a new thing. And, and, and I don't want it to be about outcome. Because we can become so outcome-oriented. You know, sometimes I always try to read the Bible in a way in which uh, I try to go, what would it be like to be Jonah before the revival, right? Like, instead of thinking, you know, Samson, I mean, almost every great story, David and Goliath, you know? Like, because we celebrate those stories as we read them because we know the outcome, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like David showing up, David finding out that he's going to be the king and then being told by his parents, hey, will you deliver lunch to your brothers? Right. How did it feel in that moment being obedient to something that would have been humiliating? Right. It's totally humiliating. I, I mean, I, if you have siblings, OK, you know exactly what you would have done if you knew you were going to be king. <laughs> right. You would have showed up and been like, hey, I'm going to be king someday. Get out there and fight that guy. But David was humble. He was a man after God owns. But, but he tried to approach the gospel instead of being outcome-oriented. But can I say, you know, we, we uh, emerged. I went home. And here's the, here's the part that I find humorous. I went home 
to a group of people who already give more probably. Like I said, we're a very small church, 150 people at that time. I went home to a group of people who are already giving enough to, for us to take on you know, $25,000 a month and, and, and pay these bills, and at the end of which we had no more money, and I was going to tell them, I have an epiphany, God spoke to me, and they're probably super excited about it, and I'm like, we're going to get it. I'm going to ask you to give more money you know, to other people. <laughs> um, and I thought, this is idiotic, but God, I can only be obedient. And so here we are as a church, at the end of every month, zero at the end of every month, zero. We're paying our bills, but you know what, God? We're making your last command our first priority. And when I made that announcement, we merged. And right away when we merged, we had merged these two small congregations, and instantly people left. They didn't like it. You know? So the church that came, they didn't like the fact that they had to walk through a skate park. You're like, oh, man, kids on skateboards. You know? So some of them left. And then the church, my church at that time was like, I don't like the fact that, that you're no longer the pastor. You know, and then they left. So all of a sudden, here, God spoke to me, said, put the kingdom of God before everything else, right? Like, and, and so I said, okay, I'm going to do that. And all of a sudden, we just shrunk. Right? And that first year, I think we gave like $30,000 to missions, which was pretty, power, pretty awesome for us because we'd given nothing to missions because we were telling ourselves we were the mission. And the second year, we gave like $40,000. We're really fired up. We're really going up. But you know what ended up happening is, is the pastor that we had merged with moved back to Australia. And even more people left. And I was like, oh, this is awesome. You know? I mean, in my own eyes, I'm thinking, what did I just undo this? Okay? And then a year after they left, COVID hit. And all of a sudden, there's, you know, we went, so we went from, we, we never really stopped meeting in person during COVID. Most people were online, but we shrunk, really, we stopped taking offerings, right? In the first year of COVID, we went from $40,000 in missions to $60,000 in missions, right? And so we're now going, okay, God, what are you, what's happening here? We've shrunk, we've shrunk, we've shrunk again. We've had this restraint, but we have never given up going. The kingdom of God is bigger than the refuge. The kingdom of God is bigger than the refuge. We have this warehouse that is, I can't, I can't undersell it. I can't, I'm, I'm just being honest. It is, it's a factory converted into a youth center that has teenagers all over it. Okay, and they put holes in the walls. They drive go-karts into the walls. They break windows and we have to fix everything. That's a little, you know. And, uh, and so COVID hits and we're, we're just, God, you're first, you're first, you're first, okay? This past year, we did $100,000 in missions. So a church, and, and you, know what I, you know what really excited me, especially when you got up and started talking about Sri Lanka? When we first, I don't know if you thought of it, but I instantly thought, when we first started doing missions, my best friend is from Nigeria, and we have a small contingency of Nigerians in our church. Nigeria is the number one most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. And when they came to America, uh, they just had a passion to do a work back in Nigeria. So they started an orphanage and a school. But they had no support. And, and it never dawned on us to figure out a way to support them because that was a work that they were doing and all their Nigerian friends were, were funneling money into that. But when they came and said, make the world, God came for the world, what are you doing to help him achieve that goal? And we said, well, we're going to do this. So I said to him, we're going to start supporting the orphanage. We built the dorms. Our church, who is now just barely bigger than this congregation right now, 
our church now, funds. In fact, the ministry in Nigeria only survived COVID because of our missions giving. Which, in 2016, when they first said, make his last command your first priority, we weren't giving anything to missions. Right? Now, and, and we were barely paying our bills. Now, we're giving over $100,000 to missions. And we're funding the work that they're doing in Nigeria, making sure. We just bought them a van, right? And we bought two vans, one for medical missions in Nigeria and one for, for the orphanage in Nigeria. We support the work that's happening in Mexico because in Mexico, there's no free education, right? So the work that they do in open arms is life-changing for those kids. They teach them English. They teach them, give them an education when they couldn't get an education. They keep the families together. And they disciple the parents as part of a, a payback. Right? Free daycare, come in for classes. Marriage classes, parenting classes. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's a, a magical work, only funded by the first world into developing nations, all recognizing that we must deliver Jesus and justice at the same time. And, uh, you know, we're going through all these things. So this, this past year, when we got on the plane to come here, we had put our building up for sale. Because it's time for us to move away from this building. There's, a, there's some terms to our loan that are coming to an end. And here we had bought this building uh, really by miracle for $1.5 million. And when we left, we went through all the finances. Now, I want to tell you guys this in, in the hopes that it's an encouragement uh, to trust in God. But I'm going to say, everything that I just described when we decided to say, okay, God, your kingdom is bigger than my ministry. Because that's, I'm sorry, that's, I'm just being honest. Like, that's how you see it when you're in ministry. You know you're not supposed to see it that way. That's not your ministry, it's God's ministry. Yet, yeah, find me a pastor who doesn't think it's his ministry or her ministry. And you better, you know what, and to be honest with you, you better hope they feel that way. Because they'll bleed for it. But, but still, there has to be this, this Abraham Isaac moment from time to time. And uh, so when we did that, when we came here, we went through all of our finances. And for the last year, at the end of every month, even though we're giving away almost, almost as much as we pay in mortgage, every month, $7,000 a month now we're giving away. We were $0, no exaggeration, end of day one of every month, $0. Now, day one of every month, we're giving away $7,000 to fund ministries all over the world, and we have about $150,000 in the bank at the end. After I just described, that is more, than, for me, I look at that and I go, that's fish and loaves. There's no, we stopped taking offerings. We stopped taking offerings. During COVID, we picked up church members in different states, right? That are now going, we're coming to this church via Zoom in Texas, right? And you go, how does that occur? There's only one way that occurs. When you go, okay, God, I'm going to let you be God. And when it comes to missions, I remember telling the Lord, because God said to me at the end of that, he said, just flat out, if at the end of next year, you get everything you're hoping for in your faith. So you're here today and you're going, I want to see my family saved. You're here today and you're saying, I want to grow in this area of faith. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's, it's, it's in your skills in serving the Lord. You, this is a part of our journey. And you're going, that's what I want at the end of the year. And the Lord said, so if, if everything you're seeking with your faith occurs next year and your faith could give eyesight 
to the Vietnamese or a home for a widow in Burundi or fund surgeries where women, are, their genitals are mutilated in the Congo and the only church, the only hospital that will do the surgery for free is a hospital funded by Imagination's church, right? And you go, at the end of my year, I could do all of that and this. And God said to me, why wouldn't you? And you want to know what I said to him? Because of money. That's what I said. I don't know what you would say. But I said, because of money. God, I have to trust you with money. I got to tr- trust you with money. And right now, we're paying our bills. At, at the end of the month, we have nothing. And I have to believe that you can do everything you said you can do. I have to believe that. I mean, and, and, and I don't know what it's like in Australia, but in America, we like to tell ourselves that we have a faith, but in truth, it's in theory, not in practice. You know, God is my healer until I get really sick, and then the hospital is my healer. God is my provider until things get really tight, and then my savings account opens up, and it provides for me. There's so many things we sing and we say and we declare in theory, right? God will protect me. God will, God will defend me. And what do we do? We call that sister or that cousin, and we defend ourselves. <laughs> uh, you could tell I have some pretty interesting family. Right? Instead of going, oh, God, you are my all in all. And I just, I just want to encourage. God can do anything we let him. God can do anything we let him. I think the greatest skill set we can develop as believers and followers of Jesus Christ is getting ourselves, I think C.S. Lewis is the one who says it, the best skills that get out of your own way and let God have his way. And he will do things that will allow, and you know what, and what's great about it is he will do things that just invoke strength in you and encouragement in you. But then he does things that glorify him so that the people around you go, what did you just say happened? Right? The economy's tanking. Inflation is going up. Arizona's one of the worst places in the United States for inflation. We're giving money away. People, people at work go, your church does what? Your church does what? You know? And we already have that because of the refuge. We already have favor in the community because people go, you're the only church that's actually doing something. And we just uh, got a bus that we're convert. Homelessness in the United States is, is out of control. It's probably the only thing on the news that's honest. If you see the news and they're telling you it's bad, that's bad. And fentanyl is, is truly bad as well. And uh, it's, a, it, it's the number one killer of 17-year-old to 27-year-olds in the United States right now. If you're 17 to 27, the number one killer in the United States is drug overdoses. Right? They're giving up. And the churches. I, I remember um, I, had a, I had a leader when I was a young person. And they said, the world is calling out for answers. And the church is stuttering. And uh, I thought, you know, the, the, nothing gives uh, a, a swiftness and, 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 and a power to what God is calling you to do as a follower and as a child of God, like missions. Because it is the mission. Missions is the mission. 